Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy 1, and we're going to be reading the 20 verses of this chapter. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, what we hear now is God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to turn to the back of your Psalter hymnals to page 56 
in the back section. Page 56, this is Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 44. This morning we'll read together questions 113, 114, and 115. I'll read the question, we can respond together with the answer. From page 56, question 113. What is God's will for us in the 10th commandment? That not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any one of God's commandments, should ever arise in my heart. Rather, with all my heart, I should hate safe sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. Question 114. But can those converted to God obey these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live, according to all, not only some of God's commandments. Question 115. No one in this life can obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that the longer we live, the more we may come to know our sinfulness, and the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Second, so that while praying to God, the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image, until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Well, this morning we are wrapping up our study of the law of God as it's been explained for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, we will certainly continue to talk about the law, but not focus on the commandments, uh, you know, one by one in the, in the sermons to come. We saw that the law has a particular structure to it. It has those two tables. The first four commandments dealing with our relationship to God and the proper worship we should offer to Him. And those last six commands dealing with our relationship to our neighbor, how we should live the Christian life with those around us. I've said a number of times during this study that the law has a much broader application than we often like to give to it. We like to see the law as something very narrow, but the commands are broader than simply a literal reading of them. Today we come to the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. And I've always found interesting that the catechism deals with this commandment uh, differently uh, in some ways, then it deals with the others. In fact, coveting is really hardly mentioned in Lord's Day 44. Because the Catechism recognizes that in many ways the Tenth Commandment functions as somewhat of a summary of the commandments that have gone before. You shall not covet. You shall not want more than God has given to you. With regard to your parents, that means wanting their authority, a violation of the fifth commandment. With regard to uh, the seventh commandment, wanting a wife or a husband God has not given to you, desiring what God has not given to you. With regard to stealing, wanting things God has not given to you. You should not covet is, is, is broader than just um, the, uh, the command. It serves as a summary of the things that have gone before because it gets at the root of sin. Sin is not simply the externals, 
But as we have seen many, many times, sin comes from inside. The root of sin in our hearts, our desires. What is it that we want? Do we want more than God has given to us? That's how the explanation begins in question 113. What is God's will? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart. We should not have that root of sin beginning inside, which may express itself then in violation of the other commandments. I like how uh, question 115 kind of wraps up this section. It says this, uh, No one in this life can obey these Ten Commandments perfectly. Why then does God want them preached so pointedly? Or to ask the question a different way, have we wasted the last ten sermons? We can't keep the law anyway. Why have we spent ten sermons going through the law commandment by commandment by commandment? And in that answer, we have a reminder of us, to, to us, of, of the ways in which the law of God functions in the life of the believer. We're reminded, why should these be preached so pointedly? First, so that the longer we live, the more we come to know our sinfulness. The law is that teacher which points out our sin. And the more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. Having been shown our sin, we are driven to our knees, driven to Christ to look for our righteousness, not from ourselves, but from Him. And second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after the image of God, living in God's image, living lives of righteousness. The law functions as a rule of gratitude. You don't have to go very far on uh, internet discussion forums to have lively discussions about the place of the law in the life of the believer. That, was, that is being discussed today. It was being discussed in Paul's day as well. What is the proper place of the law? Verse 8, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So obviously there were those who were using it in an improper way, not lawfully. What is the proper use of the law in the life of the believer? That's what Paul addresses in 1 Timothy. That's what we are going to look at this morning, the proper use of the law of God. There were those in Paul's day who were uh, claiming to be teachers of the law. And what they would do is, in order to explain the law, they would tell stories about it. They would give particular applications to how the law was to function in the life of those around them. The problem was, they began to spend so much time dealing with the story, dealing with the application, that they stopped looking at the law itself. And various teachers would argue, not about the law, but about the application of the law. They added a layer above the law. That became the focus of their discussion. That was a problem in Paul's day, adding this extra layer. We read in verse 6, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident 
assertions. They talked about the law in its application, but in adding this extra layer, lost the law itself. They were adding things. I don't think our problem today is that we add to the law. I think today our, proper, our, our problem is we don't give the law enough authority in our lives. It has too little place. It has lost its place. And why do I say that? Because while we might know the law, is it effective, is it active, is it working in our daily lives? Do we seek to live by the law, its righteous standards and ordinances? Do we recognize the law of God is that perfect standard of right and wrong, that we might live with a good conscience and sincere faith that comes from a pure heart, a heart that loves the law of God? We no longer care to hear the law today. When I was growing up, uh, there was kind of a big, uh, a big thing going on in town as they were removing... Uh, the Ten Commandments from the local public school. They would not have the Ten Commandments posted in the public school anymore. And there was quite an outcry over that. And while we should be concerned about that, what I find so interesting is many who were, who were saying we have to have the law in our schools went to churches where the law was never read. Even today, we have churches where you can go in and never hear the law of God. It, it shouldn't surprise us when the law is lost in the world that we should be shocked when the law is lost in the church, saying we no longer need to hear that, that Old Testament law. Children, I read the law every Sunday morning, either from Exodus or from Deuteronomy, not, not because I like to, and not even because the elders would like me to. It is because it is good for us. It is good for us as believers to continually hear that law of God. The law must not be lost in the church, saying it's no longer important. The law, the law belongs in our midst, which is why Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we hear that law read. The law was being, is being lost, even in church today. Paul gives a corrective to this problem going on of those teaching things about which they did not know. A loss of the law by adding to it. And he says, in verse 8 again, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and for sinners. These teachers were in many ways putting themselves above the law. They were willing to teach the law, but not sit under its teaching. And so Paul says, hey, look, we got to get this straight. The law is for those who are not, not for the just, but for the unjust, for the lawless. We don't put ourselves in judgment on the law. Rather, the law sits in judgment upon us. We may not place ourselves above the law of God. We are those who sit under that law. We are those who sit under the condemnation of that law. 
It is a righteous and a holy standard given to us by God himself. And as we read that law again this morning, and as we have heard that law explained for the last several weeks, we say we haven't kept it. We haven't done all that God called us to do. We have not lived and loved him with heart and soul and mind and strength. And we sit under the condemnation of the law. The law is that which is that corrective for us and points out our sin. It's so easy for us to live our lives as if everything's fine. As if we're being, you know, obedient enough to God. But the law is that reminder. We have not met the righteous and the holy standard. It is, it is given to us, it is for the lawless, for the disobedient. Paul says, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and the profane. Unholy and profane, those who fail to recognize who God is, those who, who fail to keep the first table of the law, honoring God, honoring his name, honoring his day, the unholy, the profane. He goes on and he says, it's for those who violate the second table of the law. It is for those who strike their fathers and mothers. That's fifth commandment, children. It is for those who are murderers. That's the sixth commandment, children. It is for the sexually immoral, the men who practice homosexuality. That's the seventh commandment. Enslavers, those who would take one's things for, for, for in, in slavery. The eighth commandment. Liars, the ninth commandment. Perjury, ninth commandment. And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The tenth commandment, that summary command. The law reveals our unholiness, our unrighteousness. The law points out we are sinners. Now that's a harsh harsh corrective for those who would desire to stand above the law. And so Paul says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this very, very personal. I'm going to tell you what God did in my life. Verse 12. I thank him that he has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, although formerly I was a blasphemer. First table. Persecutor and insolent opponent. Second table. Paul says, I know this because I have lived this. I am the one who was, who was thinking I was righteous, thinking I was holy, thinking I was above the law. And yet God pointed out my sin. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent of his. Paul, we read from Romans 7 earlier, Paul earlier in Romans 7 says, the law points out our sin. I would not have known what sin was if the law hadn't told me. I wouldn't have known what coveting was if the law hadn't said don't covet. But when I heard the law, all of a sudden, I realized what I was doing. And all kinds of covetousness sprung up inside me. The law is that, that corrective for us. It helps us to see ourselves clearly. No, we are not those who are, who are of ourselves righteous and holy and just. We are those who stand under God's condemnation. Question 115. Why should this be preached? So that the longer we live, the more we come to know our sinfulness. That's why we hear the law, read the law, preach the law. It points out our sin. But that is not the end of the use of the law. If that were it, the law would be um, something terrible, something awful, something we would hate. 
But that, that pointing out of our sin, God uses to drive us to Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? He said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an instant opponent, but he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul says, I know this truth because I live this truth. God arrested me with the knowledge of his law and the knowledge of my sin. And I saw myself oh too clearly that I am the greatest of sinners. But Christ came to me and his love and his mercy and his grace overflowed to me that I might embrace what he has done. He is the one who's done everything necessary to secure my salvation. This is Paul saying it's a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. We read earlier from Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is a wonderful encourager to us. I take great encouragement as I think about the life of the Apostle Paul that to one who was arrogant, to one who acted ignorantly, to one who was insolent, God would show his mercy. That same, that same gospel comes to us today. If you are here and thinking that you have done something beyond the pale of God's grace, that your sin is too great to be forgiven, remember the work of Christ in the life of the Apostle Paul one who was a persecutor, one who was actively seeking against God, and yet God came to him to show the mercies of his grace, the glory of the gospel. God calls you today. Whatever you have done, whatever your sin, whatever your past, trust in Jesus Christ. His grace is great enough to cover anything that you have done. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He would show his perfect patience in me as an example to anyone else. Put your faith and trust in him. He will not disappoint. He will be faithful to his promise to forgive. Yes, the law does point out our sin, but it then drives us to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Again, that's exactly what our confession tells us. That I might come to know my sinfulness and more eagerly look to Christ for forgiveness of sins and righteousness. And then beyond that, secondly, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image. Yes, the law points out our sin. Yes, the law drives us to Christ. But having known what Christ has done for us, the law now has another use in our lives. 
It teaches us how we should live, not how we should live unto salvation. We could never uh, uh, attain our salvation. But having been saved, how now do we thank God for this salvation? We live according to the law. That's question 114. But can those converted to God obey these commands perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, of God's commandments. We will never keep the law perfectly, but that does not mean we can't keep the law at all. God has promised to work in us by the power of His Spirit that we might begin to keep some, no, all of the commands. All of the commands. This is God's promise as He sends us His Holy Spirit. The law takes its proper place in our lives to continue to, to teach us how we must live, to show God our gratitude, to express our love for Him, Paul warns about those who would not hold on to the gospel truth, who would not hold on to this good, uh, good conscience. He says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. When we fail to hold on to this proper understanding of the law, it is not that which accomplishes our salvation, it is that which follows our salvation. We we fail to live as God has called us to live. We have to be, have this, this ongoing desire to live in God's ways. And he says, if we reject that, there are those who make shipwreck of their faith because we live in a way that is contrary to the law of God. We cannot say, I am a child of God and deliberately and persistently live in a way that violates His law. God calls us to faithful obedience as an expression of our love, as an expression of our devotion to Him. Paul says these have made shipwreck of their faith. They've been handed over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme, not misuse God's name, not claim to be believers, and live in a way that is ripe with unbelief. No, God calls us to live consistent, a consistent Christian life as we begin to see that small beginning, but we begin to see that beginning already in this life, to live according to all, not only some of the commandments, and that will be for us the path of blessing as well. The law has a place in the church of God today, contrary to what some would say. Some would say the law is for the Old Testament. It is, it is uh, something that is past. We are free from the law now as believers in Christ. No, the law still works in our midst. The law still points out our sin. The law still drives us to our knees and to Jesus Christ. We might see the glories of His grace all the more fully. And having seen that glorious grace, how do we respond to God? How then shall we live we shall live according to all, not only some, but according to all the law he has given to us. Oh, may the law never lose its place in our church. May the law never lose its place in our lives. But not, may not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any one of God's commandments, ever arise in our hearts. And rather, with all our hearts, we should hate sin 
we should take pleasure in whatever is right. May God's law properly live in the midst of his people. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we know that your law is holy and it is right and it is true. And yet we know, O oh God, we could never keep such a perfect law. And so we look away from ourselves and we look unto Jesus Christ. Lord God, if there are those here who are still trying to accomplish their own righteousness, still, still trying to earn your favor by keeping your law, move our hearts today to recognize our inability, to recognize the perfect satisfaction and righteousness of Christ, what he has done for us, and to embrace him with heart and soul in our lives, to live in a way then that brings glory and honor to you. We are weak, but you are strong. So we pray that you might work mightily in our hearts and in our lives. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.